We'll be looking this evening at the bulk of chapter 5 of Exodus, with just a bit into chapter 6. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. And the word of the Lord is a complete blessing to the Lord's people. Exodus chapter 5, beginning at verse 3. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. They are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, we ask this evening that you would encourage us from your word. That we would see the challenges and difficulties your people have faced throughout the ages. And that we would see your deliverance for them. And that would give us great confidence in your work in our lives. Lord, bless us and point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Have you ever been discouraged by someone? Perhaps you were planning a vacation for several months and looking forward to where you were going to go. And right before you left, you had a conversation with someone and described your excitement and where you were going. And they looked at you and they said, yeah, we went there last year. It's not very good. I don't know that you'll have a good time at all. Or perhaps it was when you were expecting your first child. The excitement of knowing that you were going to have a baby and a child to raise and all of the things that you would do, all of the things you would teach him or her, all of the ways in which you would seek to glorify the Lord in your parenting. And you are so excited and you speak to someone about this and they say, yeah, that's all well and good, but I'm just tired all the time. You know, kids are exhausting. And they don't really listen. You know how hard it is being a parent? You know... I don't know. If I were to do it all over again, I'm not sure I'd have as many kids as I have now because it's just a lot of work. It drags me down. Or maybe it was when you were at work and someone came alongside you and said to you, why do you waste your time on Sundays going to church? Why do you spend your time in something that isn't worthwhile? Why don't you do something useful with your time? Stop being a dreamer. Face reality. Don't hide behind religion. What can we do in these kinds of situations? Do we simply have to grin and bear it? Or are our discouragers correct? Is there anything that we can do to stop from sinking into a depression? Well, our text this evening shows us a very similar situation faced by the people of God. And more importantly, it shows us the answer for this, to be encouraged by God. And so this evening, I would like us to see three things from our text. First, we see the people of God discouraged by the world. Second, we see the people of God dismayed by events. And then third, we see the people of God encouraged by God. We've been dealing with the book of Exodus now for some time and we have seen that the book of Exodus is laid out purposefully to show us the grand drama of redemption, to show how God deals with his people by way of a covenant, how God rescues his people and how he builds a relationship with them. The book of Exodus is very much, in a sense, the providential outworking of the promise of God that was given to Abraham. God has provided a redeemer and a mediator in the person of Moses. Moses has been called by God according to God's timing. He's been given the promise of God. 
that God has reminded Moses of his covenant and the fact that the victory to be won is sure. God has equipped Moses with his word and with miracles. And over and over again, God has told Moses that his word is authoritative. And so Moses goes in before Pharaoh and boldly proclaims the word of God. We saw this at the very beginning of verse 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, we also saw previously how Pharaoh responded to Moses. Now, this shouldn't have been a surprise to us, because after all, Pharaoh responded exactly as God had said he would. That he would reject the call from Moses. That he would harden his heart. And so Pharaoh responds... Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh responded to the command of God with an insincere question. Who is this God? He followed it up with willful ignorance. I don't know the Lord. And he designed to set his will over and above God's will. He said, I will not let the people go. Now, this is typical of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord and Savior. And so our passage picks up this evening in verse 3 with a reasonable request that Moses makes to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh has refused to obey the command of God. He's chosen instead to hide behind his insincere ignorance. And so Moses and Aaron respond with a mild request. They say, please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, notice how Moses and Aaron handle Pharaoh's harshness. After that harsh rebuff, (coughs) they make no complaint about the treatment Israel is receiving from Egypt. They could very well have begun by complaining. They could have said, Pharaoh, you need to let them go. You need to give them a break. Do you know how hard you're working them? Do you know that you're not giving them any of the fruit of their labor? Do you know the injustice that you are performing on them? But instead, Moses repeats for Pharaoh the fact that this request is neither his idea nor the idea of the Israelites. This does not come up from the people of Israel. This is no bottom-up rebellion against Pharaoh. No, the request comes directly from God. There is no ulterior motive. Look at verse 3. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. God has given this command himself. And the request is not a flippant one. God is requiring obedience of Israel. They say, let us go, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But in any event, in their request, there is a note of patience even of pleading their case to Pharaoh. Look at how Moses begins here. Please let us go three days. Moses is making every effort to allow Pharaoh to do the right thing. This is the language of request, of deference. The word in the Hebrew is just as it would be in English, please. Every mom knows how that works. 
Their kid comes up and asks someone for something, and mom gives that look. You didn't really just ask that, did you? How do you begin asking? How do we always ask for things? Please. We show respect. We show gentleness. That's what Moses is doing here. Now, this is a good example for you and for me. How do we approach others with the commands of God? Do we do this in a gracious manner? Do we want unbelievers to see with every opportunity the wisdom of the gospel? Now, I'm not talking about compromise here. You may recall that we saw previously that Moses was very bold in his first approach to Pharaoh. And even now, he does not shy away from proclaiming the will of God. But he is willing to bend over backwards to ensure that it is God that Pharaoh is rejecting, not Moses. That's what Paul means when he says we are to be all things to all men. That he might save some. And he does this for the gospel's sake. In 1 Corinthians 9. Moses is giving us an example of not placing ourselves in the midst of this difficulty. But rather to simply plead for God. But how does Pharaoh respond to Moses' efforts? Does he see the reasonableness of the request? Does he see the folly of resisting God? No. Pharaoh makes no concessions at all. And here is where we clearly see the beginnings of God's judicial hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There is no talk of compromise. Now, that's not because Pharaoh cannot compromise. Because, in fact, we will see later in the book that he does try to compromise with Moses on several occasions. After experiencing some of the plagues, he's ready to compromise. He says in Exodus 8, you can go sacrifice, you just just have to do it in the land. And then when that's rejected, he says, well, you can sacrifice, just don't go very far away. And then when that's rejected, he says, well, you can sacrifice, but only the men can go, not the women and the children. No, here Pharaoh does not compromise because he doesn't want to compromise. Pharaoh not only resists the fact that God has total authority, but also that God has any authority over him. Pharaoh will not grant the reasonable request, and then he begins to attack God's people for even making the request. It is not enough for Pharaoh to say no. He must show Moses who's in control. And so he begins by calling on Moses and Aaron by name, showing them that he knows who they are and what they're up to. Have you ever experienced that when someone you don't know well insists on using your name? And they do it in a way to gain power and authority over you. To show that they're in control, that they're in charge. As if somehow they're close to you. That's what Pharaoh's doing here. And he then tries to accuse Moses of distracting the Israelites from their true duty. Which is not service to God, but it's service to Pharaoh. He says, why have you come now to encourage laziness in my slaves, Moses? Just who do you think you are? He says, this isn't about religion. It's about laziness. And so he then makes every attempt to abuse and discourage Moses, Aaron, and the elders who are watching. He's going to show Moses the folly of trying to obey God. 
Now, notice that Pharaoh immediately takes a note of authority over Moses, who is God's messenger. Moses has told Pharaoh that he is God's servant, yet Pharaoh treats him like he would any other slave. He says, go, get back to your work. Pharaoh is ordering Moses around. He says, how dare you interrupt and disrupt so great a resource that I have with such a petty concern as a request from God. Now then, he begins to rub salt in the wounds. This is a saying we have, but have you ever had this happen to you? I've never actually had someone rub salt in my wounds, but the closest I've ever come is when, with my contacts, as a young man, I scratched my cornea. And you know what happens when you're in pain? You have tears. Your eyes water. And you know what's in your tears? Salt. And so, as my eye is in pain, my eye is watering, which causes salt to get into the area of the pain, which causes it to have more pain, which causes, guess what? More tears and a cycle. And it's an unbelievable level of pain. Perhaps you've ever had an open cut and you were cooking or something and salt has gotten into it. It's very painful. That's why we use this phrase. Now imagine that you are standing with the Israelite elders watching this exchange between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. Now remember the context we have here. Moses has just come with the word of God and he has shown you signs and wonders. And he does this to prove that the promise of God is true and that he is about to save Israel. You've come with expectations that are through the roof. You expect God to end this struggle quickly and powerfully. And then what happens? Nothing. And then Pharaoh begins to to abuse Moses. And what does Moses do? Nothing. And then to make matters worse, Pharaoh begins to attack you. He turns this redemption into an accusation of laziness. And then that same day, the text tells us, Pharaoh hatches a plan to solve that laziness by doubling your work. Work that is already rigorous and hard, we're told in chapter 1. He abuses you. He says, you are idle. And he repeats it over and over again. You are lazy and idle. This is a lose-lose proposition. Pharaoh knows that the work cannot be done. And in a fashion that is all too typical of the world, Pharaoh denies the obvious facts and he begins to call God a liar. All he would have to do is to look at the entire cities that the Israelites had built to see that they were not idle. But instead he prefers to heap abuse on God's people so that they will not regard false or lying words. Now, lest you think this is something that only happens a few thousand years ago, think about our own society and culture. Do you know why we have hospitals in America? It's because of the church. Do you know what people did before the church set up hospitals for the sick? They died because they didn't have doctors and they didn't have a place to go. The church established hospitals. 
Do you know that every major university in the northeast of the United States was founded to train men as ministers of the gospel? Harvard, Yale, Brown, Princeton. And yet, how does our society treat Christians? As if we're lazy, as if we're stupid, as if we bring nothing to contribute to society. I spent this last week in Philadelphia, and it is very clear that the establishment of the United States itself is owed in great part to the work of Christians. A Presbyterian pastor signed the Declaration of Independence. An Episcopalian minister started off the first Congress with a prayer. Washington himself sought the Lord in prayer and refers over 300 times in his writings to divine providence. And yet our society treats Christians as if they are a waste, as if they're idle, as if they are a drag on society. So we can empathize with what the Israelites are going through here. But not only does Israel have to face the scorn of Pharaoh for seeking to obey God, instead the servants of Pharaoh join in and they delight in Israel's trouble. The taskmasters mock Israel. Do you see how they speak to the Israelites? They say, thus says Pharaoh in verse 10. They use the exact same formula that Moses has used of the Lord. They're substituting Pharaoh for God. Thus says Pharaoh, listen up Israelites, this is who you need to listen to. It's Pharaoh. You need to see who's boss. And they keep repeating over and over again that the workload is not reduced. They do it in verse 11, again in verse 13, again in verse 14, and again in verse 18. Have you ever had a job where someone keeps saying that you're not working hard, that you're lazy? You know how debilitating that is, how discouraging that is. And they delight in placing the Israelite foreman in a very tight place. We know from the text that the officers are Israelites. We see this in verse 14. They are foremen of the people of Israel. And Pharaoh's men beat them for being unable to complete an impossible task. This is yet another attempt to form a wedge among God's people. To try to get the foreman to abuse the workers to avoid their own beatings. This is discouragement that comes from the world. What happens then to the people of God? The people of God are dismayed. They are frustrated. They have been beaten. They have been accused. The best of their actions, that is a sacrifice to God, has been turned into a charge of idleness. Matthew Henry puts it this way. It is common for the best actions to be mentioned under the worst names. Holy diligence in the best business is censured by many as a culpable carelessness in the business of the world. It is well for us that men are not to be our judges, but a God who knows what the principles are on which we act. But where do the people of Israel go for help? This is an important detail. Look at verse 15. Then the foreman of of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? The Israelites don't go to God in prayer. 
They don't even go to Moses and Aaron. Instead, they go to Pharaoh. They're practically refusing to recognize the power of God. It's as if they've given up on God because of just one setback. And so they voluntarily place themselves under Pharaoh's authority, calling themselves his servants. Now, what's their reaction to Moses? We see this in verse 21. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Notice that they do see the difficulty that they're in. Verse 9 tells us they saw that they were in trouble. Now, literally, the text says that they saw that they were in evil. It is possible that they recognized the evil character of Pharaoh and his rule. But it is sad to say that their reaction to this evil is to confront and accuse not Pharaoh, but Moses. They waste no time in going to prayer to God, or even in thought. What they do is they go immediately to their failed accommodation with the world to Pharaoh, to accusing their own leaders. It's as soon as they come out from Pharaoh that they begin to accuse Moses. And the meeting is very confrontational. The word for met in verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron, means to attack It is used to describe the avenger of blood guilt who meets the murderer to kill him in Numbers 35. It is a violent word. There is a picture here that we must not see. It's not as if they're standing around and casually ask Moses to come over for a chat. No, they go out and they're filled with emotion, perhaps even rage, and they rush straight at Moses and they say, this is your fault. You're to blame here. If you just would have left us alone, If you just would have not tried to redeem us, if God would have stayed out of everything, everything would be fine. Now think about that for a moment. The people of God are so dismayed by the world that they give up on God. That they would rather be under the thumb of the world than freed by the Lord. The Israelites want to punish Moses. Simply for obeying the command of God. Now, just a few days before, perhaps, they were too eager to obey when they thought it meant freedom and everything would be easy. But now that obedience has a price, they throw it back in Moses' face. So let me ask you this. How similar are we to the Israelites? You know, God has warned us that we too may stink in the sight of the world. You see that that's the accusation that the Israelites make to Moses. You made us stink in the sight of the world. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 2. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. To the other the aroma of life leading to life. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but what is the aroma of death? Have you ever had an animal die on your property or in the street? Give it a good Texas day that goes by. 
What's the aroma that comes from death? It's a stink. It's exactly what the Israelites are saying. And God is telling us we shouldn't be surprised if we stink in the sight of the world because we are following the Lord. This is not something that we are to run from. Now, this doubt goes even beyond the Israelites to Moses himself. In verses 22 and 23, he goes to the Lord and he says, Why have you done this evil to this people? He accuses God of bringing trouble on his people. It's as if Moses thinks he cares more about God's people than God does. And he again begins to doubt his calling in verse 22. Why did you ever send me? And he doubts that God will ever deliver his people in verse 23. You have not delivered your people at all. So how does God respond to this? The world is discouraging. His people are dismayed. And how God responds at the beginning of chapter 6 is with encouragement. It's so important that I think it's one of the reasons why this first verse needs to go with the previous chapter. I'm fully aware that there's a chapter vision. There's a big 6 in my Bible too. But verse 1, I think, has to go with chapter 5. And the answer from the Lord is immediate. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. The answer is immediate. God is the encourager. He will do something right now. You will see it, Moses. God reminds Moses of what he said many times. He will redeem Israel. And you'll see it. Not later, Moses. You'll see it now. Just have a little bit of patience. And I won't do it in secret because you will see it. It will come before you. And what will happen is exactly what I have planned. Pharaoh is no match for God. I will do it to Pharaoh, God says. Pharaoh will let Israel go. What you have to do is look not with the eyes of sight, but the eyes of faith. Don't be discouraged by Pharaoh's pompous talk. It is Pharaoh who speaks lying, vain words. Trust me, God says. That's what God says to you this evening. Whatever you're facing, however you're being discouraged, whether you're bombarded at work, or whether you're challenged in your family, or whether you have difficulties in your community, You need to trust God, not what you see. That God is sufficient. That he will carry you through. That his encouragement is worth more than all of the discouragement the world can muster. Let's conclude this evening with one illustration from the pages of scripture of this. We see this in Romans Chapter 16. Eventually, we will get to it in our morning sermon series. But for now, just look with me briefly at chapter 16. You can summarize chapter 16 as Paul saying, Say hello to a whole bunch of people for me. There's no deep theology in chapter 16. There's no exposition of justification by faith. There's no covenantal theology like in chapter 5. It's just really a discussion, a listing of more than 30 people. Paul says, greet this person, greet that person. 
They've encouraged me. They've worked with me. They've worked hard for you. I give thanks for this person. I give thanks for this church. Now, why is this important? It's because if anyone had the right to be discouraged, it's Paul. Think about Paul's job description. Go to a town. Preach the gospel in a synagogue. Get rejected, maybe stoned, maybe beaten, maybe whipped. Leave. Go to the next town. Repeat. Then maybe you establish a church. And then after you establish a church in your Paul, you find out that they're talking bad in the church about you. Saying, you're no one. Your presence is weak. You're not a great speaker. If only we had other leaders. And then there are still other churches that you found and they spend all of their time quarreling with each other when they should be ministering the gospel. If anyone should be discouraged, it's Paul. But look at what Paul is doing here. He takes it as his job to encourage others. To tell others how the Lord has been using them. To tell others how effective they've been in the ministry of the gospel. We must remember this in our own lives. The Lord has called us to the ministry in which he has placed us. It might be a small sphere, it might be a big sphere. But wherever we are called, you can be assured that the world is going to try and discourage you. That the enemy wants to stop you from whatever ministry it is, whether it's baking meals for someone who's sick, whether it's teaching children in Sunday school, No matter what it would be, the enemy wants you to be discouraged. He wants you to give up. He wants you to say, this isn't worth it. I'm not appreciated. But God wants to encourage you. He tells you, do not grow weary in well-doing. He tells you to trust him, to labor on, to look to him. Because that is where our hope is found. That is true reality. Don't be discouraged by the world. Don't be dismayed by the situation you're in. Be encouraged by the Lord, your God. Let's pray.